This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. When you think of a building, whatever scale or project type, the items that go to create that building are most frequently associated with the materials that are selected that define the appearance of that building. Brick, glass, wood, and metal are all great choices. But the decision on what to clad your project in go a long way towards deciding things beyond the appearance. Welcome to episode 121, Material Selection. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Mid-Atlantic Timber Frames. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to be talking about materials and everything. Well, maybe not everything. (laughs) A lot of what that means. Not everything. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So this was actually Andrew's brainchild because one of the things that we set forth for this year. Partially, partially. I can't claim all of it because if it tanks, I don't want all the response. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's too late. Andrew, come on. You sent me an email and said, Look, we haven't really talked about this. I know. So let's do that. Materials. Yeah. You know what? And it was a great idea because we talked about this and I'll bring this up later. But in episode 119, when we had architectural defrag, part of what we talked about was how do we keep ourselves interested in what we're doing here, but how do we make it of value and keep people interested who are out there listening to it? So how do we go beyond talking about just what we know or what we're comfortable in? And how do we provide some value to the people that give us an hour of their day? I should say 45 minutes because the last 15 minutes are normally, that's ridiculous. Yes. So so material selection was suggested and we said, all right, this is a real thing. All architects go through this process. Like when I first start talking about material selection, it doesn't show up as, well, is it going to be this stone or that stone? It has more to do with, I'm kind of... I don't know if I want to admit this, but it has to do with my drafting. When I start doing my drawings, I have to start thinking about what my wall assemblies are. Yeah. So if I'm going to draw a wall and I start thinking, well, it's going to be masonry. I don't think about brick or stone. I go masonry. So that means I'm going to put three and five eighths plus an air cavity behind it. I'm going to make a thicker wall like right off the bat. Yeah. Yes. Or if I'm going to do like a cladding on it, I got to do like a air barrier and like a rain screen and like a drip plane and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Honestly, that's the first time when material selection as a thing starts to come into my brain. It's very, very generic. And I don't know this because I've literally never had this conversation with somebody else before. Is that different from what other... Wait, not even in your office? No, no. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, I mean, look. Not in the same vein. For the most of my career, I've been in a small office, so I just do what I want. Right? (laughs) Yeah, I get that. Yeah, we all get that. If we're in a small office, you go, this is what makes sense to me. And so that's what you do. Yeah. So as I start thinking, I got to put my drawings together. Yes, I don't need to know if it's this stone or that stone or this brick or that brick. And if I'm going to paint it or not paint it, I just need to know, do I need an air cavity? Do I need a drop plane? So like when I frame my wall, do I have a drip edge so I can set my masonry down? And there's detailing that I think through that has to do with it's stone versus something else. Sure. And if I'm going to do... A cladding, I go, all right, well, I'm not going to do a brick ledge, yeah. right? I'm going to flush that out. I'm going to make sure that when I set my wood stud, that my sheathing is going to be able to bypass the face of my foundation. So it's a technical thing that I think about, not the specifics of the materiality at that point. I don't want to get in front of ourselves, but yeah. this is kind of where we start thinking about it. Sure. So when we said, all right, let's do an episode on material selection, let's go through the process of the when, the why, the who, the where, and the what. Sure. Let's go through that. The things. The things. So, to that end, the when is first for me. Okay. Well, you sort of answered it, but not, maybe. But Not yet. Yeah. We haven't, well, of course I did. I jumped the shark a bit. But, so it has to do with, when does it happen in the process? Talking about, when do we make material selections? Does it happen mm. early? Is it late? Is it constantly? Did architects treat it differently? And I'm going to start at the back and work my way forward. Do architects do it differently? No idea. (laughs) I literally have never talked to another. This might be the only topic that I have never discussed with another architect. I don't know that I have really either. I've discussed it in my office with my employees, but never at this higher upper level that we're talking about right now to say, 
well, this is when you should do it, or this is when we do it. I guess my question for you would be, is it always at the same time for you? In other words, is it always at the exact same moment in the process for you? Yes. Interesting. See, and I would say it's, for me, it's not always, but that's usually based on my clients and not my preference. I mean, if it's my preference, then yes, there's a spot, but sometimes my clients tend to push those things in different directions. Well, we cheat a little bit, but it's one of those things that when I'm talking to a client, you know, and this is a little bit different earlier on in my career. Okay. I didn't even think about this when we started this as a topic. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to unbox this in my head and separate how it is on commercial projects, like really mm -hmm. big projects versus smaller scale projects, smaller commercial projects, smaller residential projects. Yeah. The savvy of my client does dictate when we talk about these things a little bit differently. Yeah. I will tell you, I'm doing a project right now that's probably a $120 million budget project. Mm -hmm. So a small one, then. Very small. <laughs> Just and minor, yeah, yeah. So, and it's really me and one other person. And we had a conversation this afternoon as we're going through the diagram. We're in the diagramming phase oh, yeah, of this wow. project. I mean, we haven't even gotten, this is the earliest part of schematic design. Yeah. And we had conversation about what color do we want to show our block diagramming? Because mm. that can start to influence what they think we're doing. Yeah. Because we're going to have to start creating some images that are evocative, that show the potential of the path we're showing. And the truth is, in our office, we have about five teams that are working on this. Oh, okay. And this is a little cutthroat process that we do in our office. We got one client. And we put together teams of about three or four or five people. And we're all like, y'all go do what y'all are going to do. And then we're going to cage match everything when we get back together. Yeah, kind of like a charrette situation where the groups are shredding and then you... Yeah. I'm assuming at the end you pick one or two or combine things or something, but... Well, I'll let you know. <laughs> all right. But that's part of what we talked about because yeah, yeah, yeah. we had conversation about what color glass are we going to show, like... What kind of mullions are we going to show? Or if we have a residential component to this tower we're doing, are we going to do punch openings? Is it masonry? Is it going to be metal clad? I mean, yeah. we had that conversation now mm -hmm. and we have not met with the client at all from a design standpoint yet, just a programming standpoint, Yeah, which is wildly different than what I would do on a an expensive program. residential project. I'm sure. But we use 3D. We're starting to do so much more 3D conversations. Yeah. Like we're modeling the project to help them visualize what we're talking about in a way yeah. that we didn't do five years ago. And along those lines, the expectation is, is it can't just be a, a white box that's harder to get away with. There has to be some materiality to it. Yeah. Especially on that kind of project, right? They're going to be like, oh, well, it's materialist white thing so that you can just look at the design <laughs> as opposed to thinking about materials and they don't. I find even some of the most savvy clients can't make that transition or that leap from looking at something that's materialist and understand it all that well. Well, you know, it's funny you say it in that exact way because we used to tell clients that we would show them essentially the digital version of a chipboard model. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we'd say, we're doing this because we don't want you to get bogged down in seeing something. You go, well, I don't like the brick. Yeah, I don't like brown brick. Yeah, you're like, the brick doesn't matter at this point. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's not what we're trying to focus in on. Yeah, yeah. So if I show you a brick and you don't like it, we're like, well, don't show them the brick. Let's keep it a white box. Yeah. Or a white whatever it's going to be. That's something that we would do. Yeah. Nowadays, we don't seem to do that very often. Yeah. It's not as common now as it was even as recently as five years ago. Yeah. In my workflow. I think it's just the expectations of the clients. I think they'd expect more. But anyway, I think it's interesting that it's that early. My guess was going to be that it was later for you in residential phases. It is. And for me, it's something that happens really early Yeah. in commercial projects. And sometimes there are clients that come to you with, depending upon what it is, but like, this is what it's going to be <laughs> because they have standards and other projects that they're trying to deal with or incorporate it into. And so sometimes it gets, it gets handed to you a little bit sooner in the project, even if it's just a pallet of materials. So we had that whole series we did last year where we talked about what is schematic design, what is design development, what is all these different phases. Yeah. So we generically say design development is the period at which we make decisions on materials. For me, and this is not true for everyone, we'd say schematic design is about getting size, adjacency, placement, programming. That's what we want to articulate. 
And when we go to design development, that's when we start looking at elevations and roof shapes and materials. Like that's when we start to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And really, because by the end of design development, and you're moving into construction drawings, you kind of want to know what all that stuff's going to be so that you can detail it correctly. Yeah. You need to know what you're doing so you can draw it and detail it to the correct dimension. Yeah. Like this is something we know. I was just having these conversations with my students this week about that, having to know that a little bit in advance, because if something happens in that wall thickness is now not eight inches thick as you've drawn it in this generic thing. And now it's 16 inches thick because you've got to have studs and continuous insulation and whatever you're, if it's masonry, it's a four inch cut stone or something. And now your wall is super thick. Now the project just got bigger. Yeah. You, know, you can't shrink towards the interior because then you're costing program. So now your, your project got four inches wide around the whole perimeter. And on 980 foot perimeter of a building, that's a lot of money all of a sudden. That is a lot of money. <laughs> so you have to know those things in advance or try to work with them. I always, if funny in this regard, I'm going to always go bigger in hopes that I can shrink it. I'm always starting out with a 16 inch thick wall or something in hopes that I can cut it down from that as opposed to working it the other way. Well, you know, that's a great conversation to have with your students. You know, it's funny. We always talk about if you're going to grow, you grow out for the very reason you said. Like, I can't make my room smaller. At least I don't want to make my room smaller. Yeah. So we actually had a conversation earlier today. I have a giant book on BOMA in my office, and it talks about when I'm measuring square footage of things, to which point do I measure? Do I measure to the interior face, to the center of the wall, to the outside face? Leasable, usable, net, gross, all those crazy things. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who don't know, BOMA stands for Building Owners Management Association. I'm pretty sure. I've said BOMA for 98% of my life without having to actually, I looked it up once, I think, like 20 years ago. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure it's Building Owners Management Association, but it has to do with determining rent. Mm -hmm. Like there are rules for how you measure things. Yes. Now, I don't have BOMA and those kind of concerns when I'm doing residential projects. Yeah. That's not something that we really get into, but we do get into usable square footage, condition square footage. Mm-hmm. We get into that. Sure. And if I'm measuring the usable and air-conditioned square footage of a house, we'll measure to the center line of some walls, but we'll measure to the outside face of other walls. I mean, it's just, it's a consideration that we work through yeah. in terms of why we do what we do when it comes to wall thicknesses. That's a big consideration that we go through is. The first time I start thinking about it is wall assembly. Mm-hmm. It's a big part of materials. Even knowing that, like we talked about, what they might be and starting with that as a, as a starting point. Yeah. So let's move on to the why. So since we broke it down into when, why, and how, and who, and all that kind of good stuff. So we covered the when. If I was going to put a bow on the when, the when for me really is during schematic design when I start doing my wall assemblies. Mm-hmm. But I don't really have to know the specifics of the material until DD, design development. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree unless it's something that's client mandated. And we'll, we'll get to that later on. Yeah, yeah. Of course. So material selection, the why. Like why choose a material? What are the considerations? And what was funny is I don't know why it's in my head this way, but I had CPMDCAS. I don't know why that's in my head that way. But it's... I don't either. <laughs> right? I don't know that any human being has that. You spit those out earlier and I was like, what? Yeah. And then you at least you <laughs> said it back to me. <laughs> yeah. C-P-M-D-C-A-S. Look, I don't know why it's like that. It's kind of like sure. when I think of a phone number, I think of the pattern more than I do the number. Uh-huh. The numbers. Yeah. So C-P-M-D-C-A-S. Cost, performance, maintenance, durability, climate, availability, sustainability. Sure. I'm a psychopath. Like nobody, why would any? (laughs) You know what? I'm not even sure those are in a specific order. Like I'm not saying that cost is first because it's the most important, Mm -hmm. even though it probably is. It probably is really. I mean, that's a big consideration when we think about. To most. Yeah. Yeah, To most for sure. So the considerations when I think about things like CPMD, CAS. Look, I'm just trying to indoctrinate everybody so that when I see you at the AIA convention in San Francisco, you're like, what's up, Bob? CPMDCAS? Think it's going to (laughs) work? No. I don't think it's going to work. I know. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So like cost. Cost is a big driver in almost every single thing that we do. For sure. For sure. You know, and because if it wasn't, I'd be a way better architect. (laughs) 
So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> My stuff would be so much cooler. I mean, I would win awards constantly. Dwell would have me on speed dial. I haven't found out how can I put more core tin on my projects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so cost figures into it. When somebody says, I've got a budget of X dollars per square foot, I go, all right, well, we're not doing this. Like, I mean, that's part of how that figures into my brain. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right off the bat, instantly to say, oh, well, that puts me in a certain spot for materials. Well, the cost also is not just like, I mean, I'm about to say something stupid. Wouldn't be the first time. When I say cost, it's not just like, ooh, this is an expensive material. Dollars, yeah. It could be, where is it coming from? That's part of the cost. It's not just metal versus something that's not metal or stone versus something that's like cement siding. Where am I getting it from? Is it going on a truck? Does it have to drive here? Does it have to get a crate on a boat? boat? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Is it going on a boat to get here? Yes. Yeah. Those are all very real considerations. Well, the other thing about cost right is also something I think that gets discounted a lot is labor. Because it could be cheap to buy, but expensive to install. Sure. That part of it is like, oh, it's really cheap. Yeah. It's like my friends who said, we're going to tile our floor with pennies. You know what that ends up being for a square foot? It takes a lot of pennies to make a square foot. Yes. Hey, put this in your back pocket, people that are listening. Whenever you're considering anything where you have product and labor as two different buckets of money that you're considering... Labor is always more expensive than material. Always. And I'm not talking about, well, I'm going to build a lot of gold. Well, that's stupid. That's not what we're talking about. Just generically speaking, labor is always your driver of cost over product. That's why all these other things like performance and maintenance and climate and sustainability, that's why all these things figure into it. Because at some point, You know that there's other deciding factors on, well, what happens next week and next year and five years from now? Yeah. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by Sam Ebersol, General Manager of Mid-Atlantic Timber Frames, a company that builds mass timber homes and commercial structures throughout the East Coast, as well as across the North American continent. Sam is based out of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania and has over 25 years' experience in timber framing. Hi, Sam. Thanks for joining us today. It's good to see you again. Good morning, Bob, Andrew. Good to see you this morning. Yeah, good to see you. Is it chilly where you're at? It is. We've had some spring-like weather in the 70s, and three or four days later, we're back down into the low 30s. So, mm. Okay, well, since we have you here, we're happy to have an expert with your amount of experience on the show, but I want to talk about how mass timber as a form of construction is really becoming popular right now, and for some very good reasons. And I'd like to take some time with you to discuss those reasons and what's happening and to go over it a bit. So let's start with increased efficiency. One of the most significant perks of off-site construction is improving the efficiency of the project. This is especially true in the mountain region where there's a lot of snow, where the construction period is much smaller. Materials for mountain projects can easily be assembled at off-site location, even thousands of miles away, and transported to the site where it's much easier to build the structure. So building in a climate-controlled facility, it always lessens the chances of projects being delayed due to weather or hazardous conditions. Sure, makes sense. So when it comes to predictability, we all know that manufacturing in an enclosed environment is far more reliable than building on site. But can you elaborate on what it means when it comes to heavy timber and mass timber? Constructing materials ahead of time in a factory setting allows us more control over the building environment, hence timeline and cost, which is music to builders and clients ears. Also, a faster return on your investment. If you're an investor putting up a multi-story apartment building and you know time is money. Mm-hmm. You want it to start generating cash sooner, this is the way to do it. Six to 12 months sooner is not uncommon. So even if the materials cost more, you're getting that return of investment much, much sooner. And again, in cold climates with the shortened building seasons, offsite construction benefits us greatly. Bad weather can set a project back for weeks, extending the timelines and increasing costs. A manufacturing environment is climate controlled, so the weather really has no impact on off-site processes. This predictability gives us confidence that a job will be finished on time and within budget because we can control it from start to finish. Nice, nice. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And 
Because of the project predictability and because of the increased efficiency, it helps us deal with another major issue that architects are dealing with right now, and that is the skilled labor shortage. Yes, that's been an issue. It really, really became evident during the pandemic, but it's gotten worse. A lot of the tradespeople have retired and our younger generation isn't stepping into that role, even though there's tons of jobs available. So finding skilled workers to complete jobs is a challenging task for many businesses. Yeah. One of the benefits to offsite construction is that fewer people are needed to get the job done. We prefer automation. So in our factories, we're using automated equipment because it's becoming more and more difficult to find skilled laborers to do the craft that we are doing. Hmm. In fact, on Wednesday, there's a team of us leaving for Europe. We're visiting multiple equipment manufacturers in Italy, Austria, and Switzerland, which Europe's been ahead of us for many, many years on the automation side of things. So we're excited to see what's new out there on the market today. Wow, that sounds like a great trip. You ought to bring some architects along with you. Yeah, yeah, I know a couple architects that would like to go see that too. Well, if you'd like to find out more, please visit www.matfllc.com for more information. You can probably even reach directly out to Sam here, and I have no doubt that he will get you whatever information you're looking for. Thanks for joining us, Sam. It was good to see you again, and I hope you enjoy your Italy-Austria trip that I'm jealous about now. Yep, we're excited. Thanks so much. It was nice to join you guys this morning as well. Thank you, gentlemen. Take care. So the next thing on my CPMDCAS is the P. Performance. Performance. That's a guess. You already told me. Well, I didn't expect you to remember. Let's be honest. I typed them all out. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. So for example, I would use way more wood on projects than I typically do because the performance, the maintenance, and the durability are not the same as other products. At least not where we live. Yeah, where we live. If we lived in Scandinavia, would that sucker up? Yes. Everything's wood cladding because somehow it works, but... Okay, here's a consideration. The part of the country figures into it absolutely because some places there's a market for people to come in and scrape your house down and repaint it. Like if you live in a coastal area, yeah, you probably will have wood products in there, but there's a market and a, a workforce. There's a service industry, yeah. Yes, that's designed around doing this. Like if you want to go up to the East Coast, right? You want to go up in Maine on coastal regions. Martha's Vineyard or whatever, yeah. There's a lot of wood up there, but they've got a market of laborers that are designed and built around fixing those things. Here in Dallas, I don't got that. That is such a huge driver that it makes me not choose wood for a lot of projects Mm -hmm. because I go, upfront cost is X, maintenance, durability, service cost, 5X. So I I don't do it. I know. And it looks, always looks great. You're like, oh, so beautiful. It's so gorgeous. I had a project where I'd almost talked a client into doing it. It was a small little office building. It was really cool. But then we was like, they're like, nope. We don't want to have to resurface it or restain it for every couple of years. And I was like, oh, but it's not very much. You're like, come on. <laughs> the cost is small. It's not the whole facade. It's just parts. You can You'll love it. You'll love it. And they were it. like, no. And I was like, yes. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Maintenance and durability, where I did a lot of public work, man, that was a that was a huge driver on the client side. Maintenance, especially. We're given the work that so you did a lot of a lot of school work. Yeah. That's a huge consideration. And it's not because I mean, that's sort of tied back to money, but it's, it's not because they couldn't maintain it. It was that they didn't either have the funding or the labor yes. to maintain those things, right? They're like, well, we can't dedicate one person to maintaining these things year round in our eight campuses of whatever this material is. Like they're nonstop polishing Italian marble so that it does like, we can't do that. Yes. We can't do that. Yeah. Just cleaning it, waxing it, whatever it is, polishing yeah. it, painting yeah. CMU block. Yeah. You choose it because it's super durable, Yeah, but you're going to paint it. So you know that if somebody comes and scratches, gouges it, writes some Bob loves everybody or whatever in black Sharpie on it. All right, just roll some paint over it and you're good to go. Yeah. That's a big part of why certain materials are chosen based on project type. Yeah. And budget. Yeah. Well, it's super easy for me to lay another coat of paint on top of this as opposed to if I clad that in wood, even if it's interior, somebody scrapes Bob loves everybody into wood. It's done. Well, I got a much different problem I got to solve. Yeah. I mean, even to the point sometimes where it's like, okay, well, let's 
Can we pick something that doesn't even have to be painted? Can we use burnish blocks so it's, they can't even really ride on it? Then there's even less maintenance. Yes. That kind of stuff comes into play big time. Yeah, but you're trading upfront costs because burnish block is more expensive. It's more expensive. But I don't have any maintenance costs associated with it. Yeah. A reduced level reduced, of, menu- yeah. of maintenance costs. And sometimes that's important. That's one of the factors. Absolutely. Whatever the CPMASDAS, whatever your acronym <laughs> crap is. CPMDCAS. <laughs> okay, so we kind of skip shot a couple of these at once. So maintenance, durability, and climate to a certain extent. Those are all considerations. Hmm. Availability is another one. Right now, that's critical mass, right? That is a big one. And I will tell you, so I'm really careful about what projects I select to talk about on the website. And, you know, since I made the change to Boca Pal, I work on projects that are gargantuan compared to what I used to work on. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times there's NDAs. Like, I can't talk about. I didn't see this coming, if I'm being honest. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that I would have these huge... Corporations that don't want you talking about their stuff? <laughs> years of my life working on a project that I am not allowed to talk about. Like, that happens a lot. Yeah. But I will tell you that when I worked on the project, one of the last projects I really focused on was the cabin that was up in Wisconsin. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. And we made, absolutely made, material selections based on, like, we chose almost no masonry on that project at all because, guess what? There's no masons up there. Yeah. We're like, you're going to drive somebody in from Kenosha. It's all you're paying like huge premium to bring in somebody who knows what they're doing to put masonry on the project. Mm -hmm. That was a big consideration. We're down here. I can't swing a dead cat without hitting a mason. Right. I mean, it's- sure. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. They're a dime a dozen. They may not be great, but they're there. Like there are tons of them. They are available. And you know what? The truth is, is if I choose another market, say Denver. Denver has a huge cement board market. Mm-hmm. You go up there and look at the houses, you might get like a stone water table or something like that. But the vast majority of projects that are mass produced up there, mm-hmm. they're all, and it's a great product. I'm not saying anything about the product, but they might put like a James Hardy product on a cement board product because it'll hold up to the kind of weather they get there and it'll look good. Now you can get integral color cement board. Colors, yeah, so it stays. And I go, that's why you use it. For all these reasons, the cost, performance, the maintenance, the durability, the climate, that's why you choose that James Hardy product when you're doing projects in Denver, like in that area of the world. Yeah, sure. I have such ready, available labor to do masonry that I can do brick here for the same cost that they can do cement board up there. Mm -hmm. It's a wash for me. And there's lots of brick plants in Texas. I mean, they make a lot of brick here in Texas. We make a lot. We make a lot of brick. I can probably, with a nice, like a high-quality wrist rocket slingshot, I can probably hit two or three brick <laughs> manufacturer plants. I got a lot of them here. Yeah, they're all over. Yeah. A big one. So here's the touchy one. So of my CPMDCAS, the last one is S, sustainability. Mm-hmm. I'm going to admit that that does not figure into my material selections very often. Mm. Sustainability. It depends on what it is for me. And I could say it factors more into mine than it ever did any of my clients, <laughs> to be quite honest. So walk me through that. What does that actually mean? Because, I mean, I think I'm doing it anyway, because if I choose brick, because guess what? It's made 47 miles away. Sure, sure. Figures into it. But I consider that more of a, well, the cost is lower because it's 47 miles away. The performance figures into it because it's brick. The maintenance figures into it because it's brick. Yeah. I mean, there's all these other things. I wouldn't use brick in Wisconsin because I got to put it on a truck and drive 2,000 miles to get it there. Sure. Right? It's just different. Yeah. So I am thinking about it, but it's not a big... Maybe that's why of the CPMDCAS, it's why the S is the last, maybe. I mean, for me, it was always like if I'm specifying products, I'm trying to find things that have a lot of recycled content or their practices are sustainable and how they get manufactured and all that kind of stuff factors in. Some of the bigger things, I can't control it that much. It's like, well, brick is somewhat sustainable because it's local. And then you try to make sure that some of the processes that are used are a little bit better if they can be and that kind of stuff. But again, it depends on whether we're talking about products, sustainability efforts, or the fact that the product is sustainable over a long period of time for its purpose, which is kind of durability, I guess. And some of that stuff, I admittedly, I would just choose for my clients. Because, you know, they're not reading my spec books most of the time. So, ceiling tile was a big one, man. I tried to pick in ceiling tile and stuff like that really early and paint really early. 
no VLC paint when that wasn't a thing because they don't tell the difference when it's up on the wall. You know, they're just going to care what color it is. Things like that. You know, actually, when you started giving that answer, I went, oh, man, I totally said that wrong. Because in my brain, I've really just been focusing so far on our conversation on exterior cladding, if I'm being honest. Yeah, in your brain. Yeah, that's what you've been thinking about. In my brain. That's kind of where I've been living, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that in our office at Book of Powell, we have staff that's dedicated to researching all these interior finishes. And like you walk in there, there are stickers that are green, yellow. We don't have any reds because if it was a red. We're not going to use it. We got rid of it. Yeah. And so we actually hired somebody that was a full-time employee for like a year. Their whole job was to evaluate every single product from a material standpoint in our office. And it was an interior finish. That's what their focus was on. Mm -hmm. It had to do with carpet. It had to do with tile. It had to do with sourcing. It had to do with all of that. And they're like, this is what you should use. And if it passed the standard of criteria that was put together, it got a green dot. It got a yellow dot for like, Look, it has some unique considerations to why it's still here. Really close. Missed a couple of things. But it's not a green. And in red, we got rid of it. Yeah. So like you walk into our material library now, before it was dog bowl chaos. There was so much stuff everywhere. Yeah. You know, we're in the process of- Moving offices or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I'm like a month and a half into a three-month or four-month exercise of moving from 16,000 square feet to 20,000 square feet. And our material library is going to get about 40% larger than what it is right now. Wow, that's weird. Yeah. I mean, it seems strange to me. But you've got a big interiors department, though, so that's different. Yeah. Every time I moved, my material library kept getting smaller. It kept getting smaller because this is real estate. Well, you know, material libraries for us, it's not documentation. Like, we don't keep binders. Yeah. Years ago, we're like, you know what? I'm not keeping a binder because I'm going to spec something and find out that it's discontinued. Sure. So we go to the internet to find that information now. But it has to do with like tile, stone, carpet. I mean, like, like actual samples of things. Actual material samples. Yeah. And we have someone who's part of their job responsibilities is to maintain. Is being the librarian for all that. Yeah. It's a huge undertaking. Yeah, it is. So that was a bit of reduction. And I didn't really think it through on my part, but. Oh, I got you. So yes. It is considered just not in the way your brain was thinking earlier. Oh, look, I will take, I will own this. On our commercial jobs, yes, we have people and we have interior designers, and they are really focused on that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think about it much from a residential architecture standpoint, because I think everything I'm already doing is already sustainable. I only choose products based on where I can get them, but that's because they check boxes for cost and performance and durability. Yeah. The other things are already so present that they are sustainable as a default of the other five boxes they're checking, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Okay. You know how many times I've specced carpet in my life on a residential project? <laughs> Probably none. <Yeah>. Zero <laughs> times. Right. So that's, I yeah. guess that's my point. Yeah. So let's move on to the next. So we did the when and we did the why. Next up is the how. I can see your face. You have a little look on your face. I know. I'm like, what is the how? How do we define the how? How is how are they assembled or they're constructed or what materials rely upon different fasteners or construction techniques? Like how do you put them on your building? And yeah, I choose concrete, but what type of concrete do I want to use? Is there a difference between port and place? Uh, board form concrete. like Board form, yeah. There's a lot of different ways to think about it. So sure. when you're choosing a material, the how to me has to do with how does the construction application manifest itself in the aesthetics that I'm trying to accomplish? I would agree. I think that's where it comes from thinking about how it's going to be assembled or how it's going to be arranged it is about the aesthetic. Once I've figured out what that material is going to be, I will say that some of the how falls into the the previous one, the the why. The why. Because if I want things to end up in a certain way and I know how I want the assembly to be, well, I'm like, well, you know, this metal panel, one inch profile with whatever fits better in this situation as opposed to something else. Or if I use the oversized king size brick versus small modular bricks or whatever it's going to be, flat cut stone versus loose rubble type stone or whatever it is. Think about that and how it's going to be assembled in the end and what that process is. Yes. Yeah. It's important yeah. in that selection. To me, those kind of go hand in hand, like the why and the how are really, of any of these, maybe closely related. Well, you know, so when you sent your thoughts through on this as a topic, 
I'm pretty sure I remember this correctly, and you tied the how to the why. Yeah. We're kind of addressing the how because of the why. But the one thing that stuck out to me was poured in place concrete. That was the one that jumped out at me at, at the how part of it. The how. And it's because when I think about poured in place concrete versus like board form concrete versus, I don't know, I'll just leave it. Precast panels. Well, I don't use precast on residential projects, but well, yeah, but on I mean commercial projects, you can use precast and well, yeah, we use precast all the time. But that normally we choose precast because that's more of a cost driver than anything else. Hmm. Normally, we don't choose precast because we love the finish. Interesting. Not that that not that the finish is good, but yeah, I was thinking like Perot precast, like aesthetic precast. Oh yeah, like you talking about like Gates. So Gates precast did the Perot. Yeah. It's yeah. a museum here that's in Dallas. And it's amazing, right? It's, it's really yeah. great. And that facade articulation. I mean, a ton of my students are always wanting to do concrete buildings, concrete buildings. I'm like, we can't just do a giant monolithic board concrete building. That's not going to work. Yeah. Like, we can't do that. Well. Brutalism is great, but we can't do it anymore. Well, you know, it's funny. So concrete as an expressed material, I probably have more conversations about that than almost anything else. Yeah. Like it's a finished product. So there's a restaurant here in Dallas. For those that are in Dallas or have readily access to it, it's R&D Kitchen. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. And they have a, a pond out in front of it. And it's a poured-in-place pond. It's shockingly, there's actually koi fish in it. But, of course, I look at it and I go, this is a terrible koi pond because there's no place for the fish to hide. But luckily, we don't have any, like, bird of prey, generally. Bird in. predators, yeah. Because normally, if you're going to do a koi pond, you need to have a place where fish can hide and protect themselves from birds of prey. Yeah. But they don't. They're like... Good luck, fish. But one of the things that's nice about that project is you can actually see all the different lifts they did when they poured this pond, mm. and they didn't vibrate it, and there's tons of holidays. Oh, yeah, yeah. For those of you that don't know, holidays are like voids in concrete. When you don't vibrate concrete, I won't say properly, because sometimes you, like, they purposely didn't do it. Mm -hmm. So there's these huge voids that are in this cast-in-place concrete pond that they did. Air bubbles that pop eventually. And it's just cool as hell. I mean, it's yeah. really, really great. You look at it, and everyone who does what we do looks at it and can appreciate, I can see every lift that they did, and I can see where they didn't vibrate it, and I can see like the accurate. It's really, really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And I will tell you that until I started doing the architectural graphic series on the website, one of the most popular posts, and probably to the state, one of the posts I get the most questions about, had to do with board form concrete. Mm. So I did a project years ago. When I mean years ago, I mean 12, 14, 15 years ago. And we did board form concrete. And everything I know about board form concrete, I actually learned from the contractor on this job. So we didn't tell him how to do it. We went, we want board form concrete. And that was like the extent of it. And this guy was like, well, this is what that means. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do it, this is how that works. And he walked me through the whole process and he's like, okay, you're going to get this wood and you're going to rip it down the middle because you don't want to get any tooling marks from the wood that you're using when you lay up the interior formwork. So you actually buy a two by six, rip that in half. So I don't have tooling marks on the outside. I'm going to invert it and get the part that I cut. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to sandblast that two by that you just ripped in half. Because you have the summer growth and you have the winter growth. Summer growth is faster, it's softer wood than the winter growth. Mm -hmm. So when I sandblast it, I'm going to erode that summer growth. The summer. So when I do my formwork and I line it with this now ripped in half two by six material, I'm going to get more, the graining is going to be more pronounced. So he's the one that taught me everything. I, and I feel like I go, I know a lot about board form concrete, like how to make it cool. I learned it from this guy, Steve Hill. Yeah. That's who it is. Like, I'll give him a shout out. It was a big deal. If I've answered one question about board form concrete, I've answered 100,000. I mean, it's so many people that go, how did you make that happen? Yeah. But guess what? It was expensive. <laughs> yeah, it is expensive. It's not even like, yeah, I'm just forming it up with plywood sides and pour it in there. Nope. No. That is not how it looks. I mean, you could do that, but you're not going to get the right look. Yeah. And I got a guy down there in a protective suit, sandblasting stuff. And like when they spaced the boards out, they actually designed it. Well, they didn't design it. We had a conversation about it that led to this. Like we ended up putting a nickel gap. Gaps. 
between each board so that when they poured it, it's kind of squooshed into that gap. There's a little seat gap. Yeah. A little seat edge there. And then we went and we broke all those pieces off and it helped create an accentuated shadow line. Yeah. So when I talk about material selection, it's not just, ooh, board form concrete, cost, performance, maintenance. All of those things start to figure into the how of that material. Mm-hmm. And when you sent me your notes, that was the only material that my brain went to on the how that was different from what was covered in the why. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Let's move on from the how. Let's go to the next one. Let's move off from the how. And next we have the, I don't know if it's awkward, seems uncomfortable to say the who. <laughs> These are your notes. So who chooses the materials in the end? Is it the architect? Is it the client? Is it both? How much influence or control do you have as the architect? Obviously, those are the big three. Yeah. And I will tell you that for the most part, the control or influence I have as the architect is substantial. And see, I would go, it's minimal. Well. In most of my experience, but that's the difference in the type of work, I think. Yes, that is the difference. When I say that it's substantial, because most of what I'm doing is I'm setting the priorities or I'm helping them set the priorities of the why. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about costs or performance or maintenance and durability and all those kind of things, that builds my argument for why we should use a certain material. Mm -hmm. Like I had a client. Here's a great example. Every time I met with her, she's like, let's do it out of stainless steel. Let's do it out of stainless steel. Didn't matter what it was. If it was up to her, this would have been... And this, to this day, is still the most expensive project I've ever done in my life. Because mm, everything was surgical stainless steel. <laughs> it wasn't. You know, I don't want to say this wrong. So let me, I want to say it was about a $1.3 million project. And it was, I'm going to say it was less than 700 square feet. Mm-hmm. That's $1,857 a square foot is what this project was. Bananas. You know what? And I will tell you, so 98% of all my meetings were with the misses of the house. Mm-hmm. This was like her project. Sure. The husband was like super cool. I'm not even sure he ever knew my name, if I'm being honest with you. And <laughs> there was Mr. Architect. Yes. And you know what? Because you've heard this story. Yeah. We're in the front room of her house. We're going to have a conversation. And she's like, I'd like to make this out of stainless steel. I mean, everything was supposed to be stainless steel. And I went you know what? We should talk about what that means in terms of cost. And I said that right as the mister of the house was walking by. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, "Mm, mm, mm." I'm walking by and he hears me say it and he he goes, hey, Mr. Architect. I was like, good afternoon. He goes, hey, just want to have a quick conversation. I'm like, sure. He didn't join a single meeting that we did. Yeah. He goes, hey, I heard you talk about like, you know, cost and I super appreciate that, but this might help you moving forward. If I want it, it's in budget. All right, great talk. <laughs> and got up and left. <laughs> that was it. That was it. That was the nice. conversation. Yeah. Right? So I was like, okay. But architecturally speaking, I didn't want to do a stainless steel box. I didn't like that anyway. Yeah. So 1800 plus dollars a square foot is what this project was. Yeah. And that's crazy. I can only imagine what that would be now. Oh, like, like- <laughs> You know what? I should put a link to it. We had a spiral stair. And they would call me up. And they'd say, we love it. He called me up one night and he goes, I love this. I love it so much. I wouldn't be out here all the time. And I'm like, that's great. He left a voicemail, by the way. I didn't talk to him. Yeah. He's like, I want to be out all the time. In fact, I want to be able to take a nap out here. So I would like for you to add a bedroom to this program so I can take a nap out here. It was framed. There were so many rules about what we could and couldn't do from a city Mm -hmm. planning standpoint. Yeah. I was like, I got to put a second floor on this. It started off as a place where they could take a shower and grill food. That's all it started. And next thing you know, it had a bathroom and a sitting area and a TV and like a kitchen. And and he's like, I want to take a nap in it. I mean, there were so many things that showed up to it. So he's like, I want a bedroom in here so I can take a nap. So that meant second floor. We ended up putting a spiral stair. And you know, I don't love spiral stairs as a solution. Mm. We had no other room to put it. Like, I didn't have the square footage. Yeah, at this point, yeah. The spiral stair by itself was like $150,000, because guess what? It was stainless steel. It was all stainless steel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like some of it was sandblasted, so it was not shiny, and some of it was shiny, and yeah, it was amazing. So Yeah. But that's part of the 
when you think about the material selection and the who, that job, those materials, that was really driven. More so than any project in my life, that was driven by the client. And me on the flip side, on all my public projects in that kind of work, it was almost always the client that were dictating a lot of the materials. Not all of them, but I mean, you work at a university, for example, oh, they've got a material palette that they will give you and say, here's what you can work with. Yeah. This color brick and that kind of stuff. Or, yeah, you know, some schools have that. The one of the worst, it's not really material, I guess. I mean, it's paint, but one of the worst things that ever happened to me was because also contractors can, at least in commercial, it seems like, can have a little influence on materials after the job starts getting constructed in there, you know. Right. Hey, we can get this a whole lot cheaper. If it's a different material, it'll look the same. It'll be perform, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. They're going to be like, come on, we'll save you some money. And really, what they're doing is they're saving some money, but they're also getting some of that as well. But, right. One of the worst things ever, we had a, it was a school project and, we had selected all the colors. I mean, done a color board and everything, and everything was gray. And it started going up. And when it got to the point, and this was just the, the school superintendent, he picked a wall color that was, he decided he didn't want this light gray finish that we had. And he went to this topish that had a pink hue to it. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was a bad color. But everything else stayed the same. <laughs> we didn't change the carpets. We didn't change anything else. So, you know, everything's got this nice, cool gray palette, which is what I like. It's gray, gray. And then these brownish pink walls. And you're just like, well, I guess I'm not taking any interior photos of this project now. <laughs> Ruin that. I didn't even know it. I didn't show up until it was done. It was finished. It was practically finished. Like the wall painting anyway. Ew. Oh, yeah. Great. That's rough. Thanks. Yeah. So clients can influence that in a bad way sometimes. But, And I've had other examples. We had a project where we were just going to use like a, a galvalum roof and because of the the rest of what they were doing. And, and we got it all designed all the way to the end, like going out for a bit. And they're like, uh, the roof has got to be this green color because they had other green roofs. They had just finished another project. And so that was going to become their standard Ugh. of like green metal roofs. And I was like, and it's not like forest green. It's like kind of a, think of an 80s kind of neonish. Oh, I know the green like, you're, I know the green you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. It's like seafoam green or something. Yes. Like that. Oh, sorry. Some bad thing <laughs> like that. <laughs> And it was just like, oh, and then the whole project just fell apart. I mean, like aesthetically it was like, oh, crap. You know what? I did a residential project and the guy out of the blue, he goes, I want the metal roof to be red. Uh. I was like, what? No, you don't. <laughs> you really, you don't. It's a barn. This is not. And it's a heat attractor. Oh, yeah. Your house is now an oven. Bring yeah, it on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So look, you have another section here that I thought was really interesting. And I thought. If every architect listening to this is honest with themselves, they're going to say, oh, yeah, I totally do. And so the question is preferences. And it's like, do you have a favorite, like a palette of preferred materials that you gravitate towards? Yes. Of course. I think so. A hundred percent. Do I always get to use it? No. <laughs> I almost never get to use them, to be honest with you. Yeah, exactly. I know. Which is kind of the heartbreak of it all. And especially, I think, over time, I developed it where there's this really great combination of palette that i have in my brain and never have yet to be able to put it all together first let's take a step back i don't propose this preferred palette on every project oh yeah no i just have a palette i like and i keep waiting for the opportunity where i can use it yeah and the client would want it mm. those two things have not there's a handful of materials that just hadn't come together it hadn't coalesced yet yeah, yeah. i know yeah and I've been able to use, like, I like that material. I've been able to use it once, mm -hmm. you know, in 20 years. Or I like this, and I've only gotten to do that once in 20 years. Yeah. So, yes, of course, there are materials that I love. And if I was going to design my own house after I won the lottery, would I use them? Yeah, probably. Exactly. Partly because, guess what? They adhere to the CPMD CAS model that I have. They work for my cost. They work for my performance. They work for my maintenance. They work. Mm -hmm. But I like the way that they look. I'm not going to lie. You know, I, I was debating whether or not I would acknowledge or confess to everybody what my materials are. Oh, uh-huh. And you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, sure. I also think the interesting thing is when you have that conversation, you can see that, though, in the architect's work. There are preferred material palettes for things. Some people are great at getting those their palette in. I know. Oh, <laughs> Richard Meyer? I know what his projects look like. All of them. Yes. Even maybe other people like that. Norman Foster, Renzo Piano. They've got a pretty... They've got a palette. A palette, yeah. You kind of know what you're signing up for, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Morphosis, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
haven't reached that level of notoriety yet where I can dictate my palate, though. Yeah. <laughs> to everyone else. Just like, well, you know what? I wrote a post about it. It was called The Architect's Ego. And Tom Main, I listened to a lecture that he gave. Yeah. Where I was just flabbergasted. Because he kind of goes, look, if you tell me what your program is and I hit it, you're done. You don't get to comment on what it looks like. That's why you hired me. I decide what it looks like. Yeah. You tell me what you need it to do. I do that. The rest is mine. The rest is mine. Wow. And I was like, not a lot of architects. We can't all do that. Yeah. Yeah. We can't do that. I had this like confusing mix of admiration and befuddlement. And disgust. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So look, we've covered the who, the how, the why, the when, what. I might have listed what at the beginning. There's not really a what. We all know what 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 might be. Materials. It's all over the place. Yeah. Materials is the what. Stuff. So, uh, we've been at this for almost an hour at this point. So, it's time to get to the part of the show that, let's be honest, everybody wants. More and more people want this part of the show. But you know what? We're going to mix it up on them. If you're here for a What's the Rank? I'm going to tell you, you're going to be disappointed because we're not doing that this time. Yep. Time for a change. Time for a change. And, you know, we introduced the idea of a new segment back in, I want to say it was episode 119, Architectural Defrag. Yeah. And we listed a couple. But this is going to be our kickoff version of the this and that. So if you didn't listen to that episode, which you should... You should. You owe it to us to go listen. (laughs) (laughs) This and that is you have to do both these things. One, here's what you get. You get this and that. It's a yes or no question. Mm -hmm. So one of these things, the this, is probably something pretty good. That's going to be a good one. And that maybe not be so great. It's going to be questionable. (laughs) Yeah, I think the example I gave was you're tall and have bad breath. Yeah. So do you want to be tall and have bad breath? Or are you willing to not be tall and not have bad breath? Yeah. Like, so what's your concession? <laughs> so the one I've come up with today, if it's stupid, that's kind of the point, if I'm being honest. Yeah. I told Andrew what it was. He's like, you're going to surprise me? You're just going to wing it on me? And I went, no, nah, here's what it is. Yeah. And I told him, the point is it's kind of stupid. That's kind of the point, right? So you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's get into it. So here it is, the new segment. This and that. Would you quadruple your salary and only eat hot dogs? Only be allowed to eat hot dogs? Yeah, that's it. Quadruple your salary, but all you eat is hot dogs. All you could eat is hot dogs. Yeah. And my question for that is, as long as it's a hot dog, what constitutes a hot dog? Just bun and some type of wiener? Well, I mean, we all know what a hot dog is. I know, but there's, as long as I go to the store and it's labeled a hot dog, then I, I can do it. Look, if you go, it's a bun with a hot dog in it, and I put a Caesar salad on top of it, and then I just eat the Caesar salad. No, that's not the point. I know. You're eating a bun and a hot dog. You can put whatever you want on it. Hot dog toppings. It's a hot dog. Nobody's going to look at it and go, that's a pizza yeah, that's okay. being carried by a hot dog. No, that's fine. I get it. I mean, I was just thinking, there's like bacon cheddar hot dog filled wieners, and there's cheddar and jalapeno. If that's in the books, like if I can do that as long as I go to the store and it's with all the other hot dogs to pick it out, yes, I'm probably okay with it. I'd do it. It's fine. You think so? You don't yeah, think I, you'd go like... I might go bananas, but at the same time, I don't know. Quadruple my salary might be nice. I would be disappointed because I do like to eat and I would get sad because, you know, I love burgers and stuff and not to be able to have it because really hot dogs and burgers are like brothers and sisters. They have to be there. Hey, you know what? There's a reason I didn't make this a hamburger. And quadruple your salary. Because I go, Andrew's like, in. It's <laughs> not even a question. All I'd say is, quadruple your salary, in. I'm in. I'm done. What does it matter what it is? Actually, for me, it would be only eat hamburgers would be the positive part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and for you, it's like, only eat hamburgers and half your salary. Yeah. You're like, in. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. done. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Part of the reason we do these is because they're supposed to not really be as easy as you might think that they are. Yeah. So the question is, do I get quadruple my salary for as long as I only eat hot dogs? That was going to be another question. Is this when I quit? Is that that's done? And then I go back to regular salary. Yeah. 
If that's true, in. Yeah, me too, for sure. Totally. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I might be in anyway, because, again, I don't mind a good hot dog, but I might just stop eating. (laughs) So here's the other consideration. Let's say that you just graduated from school. Oh, good. So quadruple your salary is, obviously, it's four times as much as what you're making. But maybe that's still not a huge amount. True. And all you're eating is hot dogs, which is different. Then if you're like a king, like I am, and you make a million dollars a year, and I'm going to make $4 million a year I know. and eat hot dogs, done. Yeah, yeah. Like, of course, that's clearly I would do that. Sure. But even still, I mean, I think no matter where you're at, though, four times your current salary, without any change to what you're doing, that's still a pretty big game changer. Yeah. I'm doing it now, and I have a tendency <sighs> to eat hot dogs every once in a while, so, eh, you know. Okay, so here's the other question. So, I actually like hot dogs. Actually, I think we talked about this once. Yeah, recently. I'm like a 50-50 hot dog bun ratio. Your ratio is really specific, yeah. I will cut a hot dog in half if it's too big, because there's only so much hot dog flavor that I want. <laughs> like, I don't need yeah. uber hot dog flavor. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's not my thing. I don't love it. Bun length, one pound hot dog wiener. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't want that. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. I can't. Actually, you and I were in Vegas, and I got a hot dog, remember? And I was like, this is, I'm about to die. And I was so excited, and I got it. I was like, it was like a chili dog, remember? And I was like, this is literally might be the most hot doggy thing I've ever had in my life. I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah. So, if I have control over the hot dog. That part, yeah. Yeah, then for sure. I feel like I have an obligation. My wife, she would say, Oh, yeah, you're totally eating hot dogs. You're, you're eating hot dogs because we want four times your salary. Four X your salary for eating hot dogs? You're totally doing that. Yeah. I don't even know that I would have a say if she got a vote. Well, here's my thing now that you mentioned it. If I get four times my salary, that's going to give me, at least at this point in my life, a little bit of disposable income. Not a lot, but maybe a substantial amount. That I could open a gourmet hot dog restaurant. No. And then I'm hiring someone that makes these fantastic hot dogs, and that's the kind of hot dogs I eat. It's fine. Your whole goal is to create a restaurant that serves you the hot dogs that you're willing to eat. Yeah. To make four extra salary, which you're subsidizing <laughs> the hot dog restaurant to pull off. But then the hot dog restaurant's making money, too. People want hot dogs. I mean, of course. Yeah. So it's a bonus bonus, maybe. Or maybe I could just hire a personal chef. <laughs> If there's such a thing, could you imagine that to have to hire a oh my god a personal hot dog chef? What do you want to do? I'm oh just my god, make that, all my personal hot dogs. <laughs> that chef would go home and go, "Where did my life go wrong? I went to the Culinary Institute <laughs> of America, <laughs> and I'm a private chef, and all I make is hot dogs." Yeah, and I'm like, make the homemade hot dog wieners and everything, but it's a hot dog. It's still a hot dog. Oh, That's your god. job. That's your job. Yeah, I feel my heart breaks for that person now. <laughs> Oh my God, that would be the worst. That would be the worst for them. They might have fun with it for a month. I know, but then I could eat hot dogs for a lot longer. Me personally, to keep my quadruple salary because I'm. Oh my. Yeah, you'd have like a fried chicken hot dog. I know, right? Like, yeah, I mean. Like- <laughs> okay, so we're both enthusiastic yeses to the yes. I would quadruple my salary and only eat hot dogs. And especially if it, if the condition was until I got tired of hot dogs. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Totally. And if I could. Yeah, that's a no-brainer. I kind of feel like, would it change if you went like, no, this is your life? You have to. Like, you say yes. No, I'm still I'm still there. For the rest of your life, you're four extra salary, but for the rest of your life, you're also nothing but hot dogs. Yeah, but at the same time, I feel like if I ate nothing but hot dogs, my life is actually going to get a lot shorter. <laughs> yeah, you would hang yourself by hot dogs. You would make a noose out of hot dogs. Or I'm going to just die earlier because hot dogs aren't that healthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gross. Okay, so you know what? I'm really curious. If anyone else is like, look, if you're one of these people that's like, oh, there's 18,000 roach hairs in a hot dog, I would never eat a hot dog. If you're that person, we don't need to hear from you, right? We get it. You don't want to eat roach hairs. If you're just a regular person, I want to hear if somebody would not do four extra salary for hot dogs for as long as you eat hot dogs. Yeah. That seems like a no brainer to me. I got a feeling like John, he's retired. Why would he do that? I don't want four times my retirement. I think John'd be down. You think? Interesting. I think he'd be down. Oh, yeah. I feel like if I was retired, I'd be like, meh. But although maybe, it, may, it might mean more if I was retired. I think Amir would be the first person to say, no, I'm out. <laughs> Wouldn't do that. Yeah, maybe. So, hey, look, Amir, you need to tell us. You in or out on the hot dogs, right? Straight up. <laughs> I think we've reached the point where I'm going to say, 
Today's show is wrapped. Thank you for being with us for episode 121, Material Selection. Special thanks to our sponsor, Mid-Atlantic Timber Frames. To learn more, please visit www.matfllc.com for more information. You can probably even reach out directly to General Manager Sam Ebersol, and he will no doubt get you whatever information you are looking for. We would also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms, so hit that subscribe button so you get notified every two weeks when we publish an outstanding new episode. And while you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star CPM DCAS rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com, blog posts, links, and info about this totally awesome episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your own voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.